eating and, and whatever else you're doing, and I'll, I'll just try and talk. And uh, I want to take this opportunity to thank you very much for inviting me along to speak to the Macon uh, Biblical Institute. It's been a great uh, pleasure and joy for me to have been here. And our theme all this weekend and the beginning of this week has been, as you've just heard, faith on trial. And we've been looking at various characters in the scriptures from Joseph to Asaph to Elijah and Peter. And this afternoon, I want us to think together about the biblical character of Job. Now, everybody knows that Job suffered. Everybody knows that Job went through a trial. And maybe it's your experience that in a time of crisis, you too turned to the book of Job in order to find help and relief in the midst of your personal trial. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if you discovered that in reading the book of Job, you came away more confused than ever. Because that's the experience of many Christians as they read the book of Job. The first two chapters seem to make sense, but from then on, perhaps until you reach the last five chapters and and possibly just the last two or three chapters, what lies in between is a great deal of confusion. And so in the space of 25 minutes or so, I'm going to try and summarize the book of Job to you. You all remember what happened to Job. The book opens in chapter 1 with a description of Job's integrity. We're told on three occasions in the first two chapters that Job was a godly man. He was an upright man. He was, to use the language of the passage, a blameless man. Not that Job was sinless. Not that Job had never committed any transgressions. Not that. There's only one person who is blameless in that sense, and that's Jesus Christ. But in the eyes of God... And the testimony in those opening two chapters is the testimony not just of Job himself. It's not just the testimony of those who knew him. It's not just the testimony of the writer of the book of Job. It's actually the testimony of God himself. God says about Job that he was an upright man and a blameless man. In other words, we are being told right up front... In the very preface to the book, we are being told something deeply, deeply significant about Job. That whatever the reason for his suffering, whatever the reason for his trial, it did not have anything to do with sin on his part. That's very significant. We'll come back to it in a minute. But hold that in your heads. And you remember what happens. There comes a day when the sons of God are presenting themselves before the Lord, and we read that Satan is also there. And God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That's very significant, isn't it? That it's God who brings to the attention of Satan his servant Job. 
And God sets a limit. He sets a boundary. He sets a hedge about what Satan is permitted to do. On the first occasion, Satan can touch all that Job has, but he must not lay a finger on Job. And you remember the story? In one day, Job loses everything that he has. His home, his livelihood, his wealth, his security, and all ten of his children. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? The sense of trauma, the sense of pain, the emptiness, the anger, the frustration, the sense of loss and bereavement in losing all ten of your children in one fell swoop. And yet you read those wonderful, wonderful words at the end of the first chapter of Job. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you want to say, as I want to say, Lord, I want to respond like that too. If trial comes, when trial comes, that's the way I want to respond. Then you turn to the second chapter of the book of Job, and there comes another day. And again, the sons of God are presenting themselves before the Lord, and Satan is also there. And God brings to the attention of Satan his servant Job again. Only this time, the boundary is set at a different point. And this time, this time, he is allowed to touch Job, but not to destroy him. And Job is smitten with a disease. It is probably something like elephantiasis. It's a skin disorder. It's deadly. It will destroy him utterly in a very short space of time. And there at the end of chapter 2, we have the wonderful picture, astonishing picture, poignant picture of Job's wife saying to Job, curse God and die. Acting as Job says, like a foolish woman. And Job says to her, shall we not accept good at the hand of the Lord and not evil? And it's an astonishing confession of the sovereignty of God in trial. But then you remember what happens. You turn to chapter Three, actually, at the end, at the close of chapter 2, Job is joined by three friends, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. And later on, around about chapters 30 and 31, he's joined by, in chapter 32, by Elihu. Now, what do these three friends, the first three of them, what do they have to say? Well, their message is a very simple one. When people suffer, when people find themselves in trouble, it's their own fault. You reap what you sow, you get what you deserve. It is an expression of the justice of God 
And Job has to acknowledge that the reason why he finds himself in the situation that he does is because in some way or another he has sinned and fallen short. There is a difference between these three friends. One of them is older than the others. He speaks first, Eliphaz. He's the philosopher. Another is a traditionalist. Another, Bildad, is much more blunt. He perhaps is the youngest of the three. He's crass. He's rude. Spares nothing of Job's feelings. But all of them, all three of them, have the same message. Calvin says, and in 15... 54 and 1555, Calvin preached 159 sermons on the book of Job. It lasted about 14 months or so. And there were midweek sermons. There would be three of them on one week and one on the following week. And Calvin says of Job's three friends that they only have one song and they sing it to death. And what is that song? Well, it goes like this. God doesn't want you to be poor. God doesn't want you to be sick. God doesn't want you to be floundering. God doesn't want you to be second class. God wants you to be prosperous and healthy and strong. And you say to yourself, where have I heard that before? And you've heard it, of course, on the religious TV channels, and you've heard it on the radio, on Sunday broadcasts, the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, the name it and claim it gospel, the gab it and grab it gospel. And you know their message is as old as the message of Job's comforters. Now to be sure, the first friend, so-called friend of Job, begins mildly. He suggests that the reason why Job is suffering is because he has committed a transgression. He may not even be aware of it. It may be so small that he has forgotten all about it, but if he searches his conscience and confesses his guilt and pleads for forgiveness, he will see his life restored again. And one after another, they repeat this message with increasing conviction and brutality. I remember visiting one time a member of the church in Belfast. She was in her early 40s. She was a mother of three teenage children. She was dying of breast cancer that had become enamored with all kinds of uh, complications. She was about 24 hours away from death. She knew it, I knew it, her family knew it, the surgeons, the doctors all knew it. And I went to visit her in a hospice. And as I walked in, she was crying, and I noticed that somebody had just left. I asked her what was wrong, and she said, well, a minister, or at least somebody who called himself a minister, had just been to see her. 
And he had said to her, you know, if only you had more faith, if only you had more faith. And I said to her, Jane, I said, you know that that voice came from the pit. You know that. Yes, she says, I know that. But it still hurt. Because that minister had suggested that the reason why she was dying was because she had sinned. Because lack of faith is a sin. And in effect, he had sided with Job's comforters. You know, with friends like that, who needs enemies? Now, I'm not suggesting, and neither is the Bible suggesting, and for that matter, neither is Job suggesting, that sometimes God doesn't punish us for our sins. I'm not saying that. Sometimes God does do that. You ever read the story of Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6? Do you remember what he did? Stretched forth his hand to prevent the Ark of the Covenant from toppling over and falling on the ground. It was a, an instinctive thing to do. He just put his hand forward. But it was a violation of the commandments of God that only the Kohathites were allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. And do you remember what happened to Uzzah? He was struck down dead. It shocks me. I, I, every time I read 2 Samuel 6, I'm shocked by it. I am shocked by it. And sometimes I'm tempted to say, well, you know, that's Old Testament. Things like that happened in the Old Testament. And then you turn to the New Testament, you turn to the Acts of the Apostles, and you turn to the days of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit when, when men and women spoke in tongues and prophesied. And you read the story in Acts 5 of Ananias and Sapphira, who told a white lie about the price of a piece of real estate which the church had no business knowing anyway, and God struck them down dead. And that's New Testament. And that's early church. And that's Pentecost. God sometimes punishes us for our sins. And sometimes he does that instantly and immediately. You remember when Paul writes to the Corinthians... And there was all kinds of trouble in Corinth, and there was all kinds of sickness in Corinth, and some of them were dying. And Paul is suggesting in 1 Corinthians that at least a part of the reason for that was because of their sinfulness. But that is not the case here in Job. And how do we know that? Because God himself says so. Because right in the opening chapters, God vindicates the character of Job. God tells us that he was an upright and a godly and a blameless man. So whatever the reason for Job's suffering, it wasn't because of his sin.
Turn with me. You've, you've got a Bible in front of you. I haven't read any scriptures yet because you were all eating, but now you all seem to be almost finished. So turn to your Bibles and turn to Job. comes before the book of Psalms. And turn to chapter 38. The three friends have spoken. They only have one song. They've sung it to death. They've run out of steam. They've got nothing else to say. And then Elihu comes, and I don't know what to make of Elihu. The Bible doesn't tell us anything about Elihu. God doesn't make any judgment on Elihu's contribution. I personally think Elihu begins well, but then falls off towards the end and becomes almost like the three friends again. And Job has been asking all kinds of questions. You know the kinds of questions that you ask when you find yourselves in trouble, questions that begin with the interrogatives. Why? Why me? Why now? Why in this way? Why so severe? Why my family? You know, it's one thing, it's one thing for God to touch us. It's another thing when God touches our children. You know, we sometimes think if God touches us, we can take that. I can handle that. It's not comfortable. It's not in my comfort zone, but I'll handle it. But when he touches our children, over which we have absolutely no control whatsoever, and when all ten of Job's children are taken... That's something entirely different. And Job has got depressed, and he's got angry, and he has said things that he should never have said, and he has implied things that he should never have implied, and he's pleaded his innocence, and he's heard his three friends, and he has begun to believe what they say, and he has pleaded with God to take away his life. And now finally in Job 38 and verse 1, God is coming to speak to him. It's taken 38 chapters, but God is now finally coming to speak to him. And how do you think God would come to a man in Job's condition who's at the point of dying? And you might think that he would come as he came to Elijah in a still, small voice, in a whisper, but he comes, as you can see, in a storm. Then the Lord answered Job, out of the storm. And you say to yourself, Lord, why are you doing this? Why, why this way? Because, because, my friends, Job needed to learn a lesson First of all, about the character of God, the God whom he worshipped and the God whom he dearly loved, and the God now that he was finding it difficult to hold on to. And that lesson that he needed to learn, first of all, about God was that God is sovereign, that God is sovereign. He comes in a storm. Now notice what God says. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words 
without knowledge. Job, you've, you've spoken a great deal, but you've made very little sense. And then notice verse 3. Brace yourself like a man. The Hebrew word to brace yourself is a word that is drawn from the field of wrestling. And God is saying, in effect, Job, you've been asking for a fight. You've been asking for a fight, and now you're going to get one. Here are the rules for the contest. I will question you, and you shall answer me. And you get the impression that this is loaded. You get the impression that there's something not altogether fair about this. This is a contest not between equals. God is going to do the questioning. Job is going to do the answering. So here comes the first question. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? And Job is dead on the floor. It's a knockout blow. It's a knockout blow. He hasn't got an answer to the very first question. Where were you, Job, when I laid the earth's foundation? Do you see what's happening? God is making himself bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger so that it blows your mind away. Now, if you had time, if we had time, we would go through all the questions that God asks in chapters 38 and 39. All kinds of questions, none of which Job has answers to. Questions about the universe, about the stars, about the solar system, about the sea, about what lies at the bottom of the sea. All kinds of questions about this world in which Job lives, and he hasn't got an answer to any of them. And then, and then something altogether strange. In chapter 40 and verse 15, chapter 40 and verse 15, he says, look at the behemoth. Now, we've got to make some um, explanations here. What is a behemoth? If you're familiar with the King James Version, it's probably an elephant. It's... Um, not like any elephant that you've seen. If you read the description of it, it doesn't look like an elephant. Uh, modern scholarship says it's a hippopotamus. doesn't look like any hippopotamus I've seen either. But that's where modern scholarship is at. It says it's a hippopotamus. All right, let's, let's take it for granted. Can we agree that God is asking, did you ever think about a hippopotamus? Yes, I did. It's like something a committee would make. But ask yourself, ask yourself, why, why is God asking Job about a hippo? Don't you sort of want to pinch yourself and say, Lord, you've got to be kidding. Go to the first verse of chapter 41. Can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook? Now again, lots of debate as to what this creature is. Maybe one of the prehistoric dinosaurs. That's a possibility. But modern scholarship says it's a crocodile. Let's agree. Let, let's, for now, just for now, agree that it's a crocodile. And God is coming to Job in his condition with all of his questions, and he's saying to Job, have you ever considered the crocodile? 
all tail and teeth. And you say to yourself, Lord, you've got to be kidding. You must be kidding. Why is the hippopotamus the way that it is? Why is the crocodile the way that it is? Do you know the answer to that question? It's a very simple answer. Do you know the answer? Why is the hippopotamus the way that it is? The answer is, I do not know. That's the answer. I do not know. But you see, it's not important that I know. It's only important that he knows. And pain is like that. And suffering is like that. And the trial of faith is like that. That very often we ask questions and we come to the point and we say, I don't know the answer to this. Because God is incomprehensible to me. Not that he cannot be known at all, but that he cannot be known fully. God is far greater than we can ever imagine. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Oh, the depths, Paul says, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. His ways are past finding out. And the first thing that Job needed to learn and needed to bow his heart to was that God is not under any obligation to explain himself to us. That's a hard thing, isn't it? That's a hard thing. That the message of the book of Job is that God is incomprehensible to us. That's an astonishing thing, isn't it? Because for some of us, that's very difficult because we want to have God all boxed up and wrapped up with a bow. And we can pick him up and take him with us and open him up and then put him back in the box again. And God won't let you do that because he is the creator and you are the creature. Now, he loves you. And if you're a believer, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, he loves you in Jesus Christ. He loved Job. But he didn't explain to Job the reason why he did what he did. He never did explain. You can read to the final verses of Job, and there are no explanations. None. Zero. Because God isn't under that obligation. Ours, not the reason why, says the poet. And it's the message of Job. You know, Job learned something about God in this book, but he also, in a couple of minutes that I have left, he also learned something about himself. Do you notice in chapter 40 that he comes to confess his sin? In verse 4 of chapter 40, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. Don't misunderstand that. Job isn't saying that he was sinless, that, that he had committed some transgression which explains now why the trial has come. No, he's not saying that. 
But he is saying that in the midst of the trial, in response to the trial, he had uttered things and said things and thought things that perhaps he had never thought possible. Do you know what the trial has done in the life and testimony of Job? It has closed his mouth. I lay my hand upon my mouth. It has shut him up. That's a hard thing, isn't it? That's a terribly, terribly hard thing because in the midst of our pain, we want to cry out in anger and frustration. And God says, shush, shush. You don't understand what I'm doing, but I do. And that's all that matters. At the end of the day, that's all that matters. When bad things happen to good people, is it any comfort to say God isn't there? Is that any comfort? That you can leave this place this afternoon and walk out here and get into your vehicle and drive down the highway and you can find yourself turning a corner and you're in a black hole. And God isn't in control and God isn't there. That's no comfort. That's no help. That's no remedy. When bad things happen to good people, God is right there in the very center of it. And yes, there are aspects of that that I don't understand and that I can't fathom and that my tiny, puny little mind cannot take in because his ways are not my ways. But I trust him. But I trust him. You know, some, some Christians will sometimes say, when you get to heaven, you'll understand. And that sounds wonderful, and it always seems to do something in people's hearts when you say things like that. But, you know, that isn't true either. Because even in heaven, you will still be finite. You'll still have a finite. You'll have a perfect mind. You'll have a renewed mind. You'll have a Christ-like mind, but it'll be a finite mind. And all through the ages of eternity, you will be saying, Oh, the depths, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God and His ways, are past finding out. So that for all eternity, your response will be one of awe and wonder at the majesty of God. Now, that's a great truth, but it's a hard truth. But it's the only truth there is. And God calls us to obedience, and He calls us to discipleship, and He calls us to faith, and He calls us to trust Him. Trust Him when the lights go out. Trust Him in the dark. Trust Him when He doesn't give any explanations. Let's pray together.